can be seated. Thanks, Brian and Ben, for leading us. Thanks, Lindsay, for um, introducing us to Centering Prayer. Uh, you would think just sitting in silence for five minutes would be easy, um, but it's not. Uh, it's such a challenge in a world where we have so many thoughts and so much noise, and so it's a good practice to, um, to do. Uh, on July 15th, 1979, President Jimmy Carter delivered a speech to the nation. Many of us were not alive back then, or perhaps you were alive, but you were so young that you don't really remember it. Uh, but the 1970s were a difficult decade for our country. Uh, we were still wrestling with the social unrest of the 60s. There were lingering issues with civil rights. Uh, there was the country's failure on almost every single level when it came to the Vietnam War, which ended in 1975. Add to that urban decay, economic recession, growing Cold War fears, unrest in the Middle East, the Watergate scandal, and then two oil crises. At one point, the price of gas quadrupled. Imagine today sitting in a line for a couple of hours just to get to the pump at the gas station, and when you got there, it was $16 a gallon. Things were bad. The Beatles had broken up. <laughs> Elvis had died of a drug overdose. You know things are bad when the only bright spot in our culture is disco music, all right? So by 1979, at the end of the decade, as another energy crisis was plaguing the nation, President Jimmy Carter knew he had to go on TV. He had to deliver a message to the people and tell the people what his administration was going to do to address the economic challenges that everybody was feeling. But to prepare for this speech, Carter decided to retreat to Camp David for 10 days. He wanted to do his own soul searching. He wanted to ask some of the deeper questions. He wanted to diagnose maybe the heart of the issues that the country was really facing. And so when he finally appeared on TV, he said the problem was not really energy. It wasn't really oil. It wasn't really the Cold War. It wasn't really economics. Rather, the problem was us. He said this, we are confronted with a moral and spiritual crisis. It's a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. And we can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. He went on to say this, uh, in a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. He would go on to say, basically, that the answer to all of this is not to complain about what's wrong out there, but to begin to change what's wrong in here. And if we don't do that, if we don't address this spiritual and moral crisis in our own hearts and in our own lives, then the nation will just continue its downward spiral. 
Now, how do you think this message was received? Well, it's fascinating to study this historically because, interestingly, uh, Carter's approval rating rose 11 points overnight. The initial response to this message was positive because people sensed that he was seeing something that maybe no one else was seeing and that he was bold enough to talk about it in ways nobody else was going to talk about it. But over time, the speech didn't sit well with the rest of the country. Nobody really wants to be told, you're the problem. The problem isn't out there. You are the problem. And that's essentially what Carter was doing. He was saying, we've all become too individualistic, too consumeristic, too narcissistic, and too self-indulgent, and it is destroying us. And though Carter was probably right, here's what one newspaper wrote about his speech, and I think it captures what all Americans felt. The nation did not tune in Carter to hear a sermon. It wanted answers, and it didn't get them. Now, I share all of this because I think in this moment and in this speech, Jimmy Carter exemplifies an Old Testament prophet. If you happen to be new with us today, we've been reading through the Bible together this year as a community of faith, and we've been mostly in the Old Testament, and now we come to this long section of the Old Testament prophets. And today, I want to tell you a little bit about these books. I want to tell you why they're so important. And then I want to offer a couple of questions that they raise for all of us, whether you're doing this reading challenge with us or not. Now, we've already talked and read a little bit about some of the prophets in Israel's history. The most well-known is a guy named Moses. Now, we don't often think of him as a prophet, right? But after he dies, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says that Moses was the greatest prophet in Israel's history. Or there was a guy named Nathan who was a prophet during David's time. David would often consult him on important matters. Or there are the stories of Elijah and Elisha that we've read, two different guys. Some of their stories are a bit odd. Uh, the most well-known is when Elijah um, challenges a whole bunch of other prophets on top of Mount Carmel. There are some women that were prophets as well. Uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, was called a prophet. Deborah, who led the nation of Israel for decades during the period of Judges, she is called a prophet. And then there's a woman named Huldah. She became one of the leading prophets during King Josiah. He was one of the good kings in Israel's history. Now here's what all of these prophets have in common, and this is really, really important. Prophets speak for God. That's what they do. They simply speak for God. They have a unique and intimate relationship with Him, and so God speaks to them so that they can then speak His words to the rest of the people. And so Moses, it says in the Bible, uh, meets with God, and God says to Moses, I have a message for you, and I want you to deliver this message to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh, king over Egypt. To the people of Israel, when you see them, tell them that I have heard their cries and I will rescue them from slavery. And then to Pharaoh, you tell him to let my people go. And so that's what Moses does. He speaks for God because prophets speak for God. Now, something significant happens in about the 8th 
century BC. So let me put a timeline up on the screen. And I'll explain it. There's a bunch of stuff going on here. We've been reading the Old Testament historical books that follow Israel's history from about 1200 B.C. to 400 B.C. Remember, there was the period of Judges, and then we got to what's called the United Kingdom, where there was one king leading Israel. First it was Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And in fact, much of the poetry and wisdom literature we've been reading for the last several weeks comes from that time or from some point after that time. But after Solomon's death, 931 B.C., there is a civil war that follows. And the nation splits into two. And they basically become two separate kingdoms. And the ten tribes in the north continue with the name of Israel. That's what they're known by. And the two southern tribes become known as Judah. So two parallel histories of two nations now or two kingdoms. And these two nations hold their own for a few hundred years. But beginning in the middle of the 8th century B.C., three consecutive empires would rise up and dominate the world of the ancient Near East. First, there was the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and then the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire. And we know about all of this, not just from the Bible. We know about this from historical records and archaeological records. This is what you would learn if you go to any museum in the Middle East today. In fact, let me show you a couple of reliefs. A relief is like a sculpture on a wall. Here's uh, the first relief. This is the Assyrian king, uh, Tiglath Pileser III, who took the Assyrian throne in 745 BC, and he led the Assyrians back to world dominance. And he's described in the Bible numerous times. This is a relief of him. It's dated to 728 BC. It's in the British Museum today, if you want to go to London and see it. And his foot is on the neck of someone he has conquered. Here's another relief of the Assyrian army besieging a town, perhaps a town in northern Israel. Do you see the people at the bottom being slaughtered? Do you see the people of the town in the top, in the middle there, impaled on poles as the Assyrian army sweeps in? This is what we know about the military might and the brutality of the Assyrian empire. Now, if we go back to the timeline, uh, beginning in the 8th century, for the next several hundred years, these three empires, first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, will strike fear in the hearts of all other smaller nations, particularly Israel and Judah. But in addition to these external threats, there are all kinds of other internal problems happening in Israel and Judah at this time. It's a bit like the 1970s in America. It's a time of despair. It's a time of fear. It's a time of instability and anxiety. And essentially what all the people are asking during this time period is, what is wrong with our nation and what do we need to do to fix it? And this is where the prophets come in and offer their answers. In messages delivered to the nation, not on TV like Jimmy Carter, but in different forms and fashions, they deliver these messages to the nations. And then these messages are later collected. They're written down. They would later be edited and put in final form. And they're preserved in the books that we now know as the Old Testament prophets. Now, there's 17 books of the Old Testament prophets, and one way to group them is according to length. Uh, so the longer prophets are Isaiah, 
Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Lamentations is included in there. It's not long, it's short, but we know it was probably written by Jeremiah, so it's included there. And then there are the 12 shorter prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And this is the order that these books appear in all of our Bibles. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, which has the same content as us, it's ordered a little differently. All of the 12 shorter prophets are actually combined together in just one book, probably because they were all short, and that way they could all fit on one scroll, which is about the same length of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And sometimes these two groups are called the major prophets and the minor prophets. Um, but that's not really a helpful names because that makes it sound like one group is more important and the shorter books are less important. And that's not really true. They're just shorter. They're not less important. Now, a different way, real quick, of categorizing these books is by the time period that the messages were delivered and what they're actually addressing. So the first group of prophets are concerned with that Neo-Assyrian period I mentioned. That's Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. Uh, maybe you remember the story of Jonah. Where is he told to go? Nineveh, which is one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire. Now you know why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And then there are the prophets of the Neo-Babylonian period. Uh, for example, Nahum is one of those. He describes... How in 612 BC, the Babylonians sweep into Nineveh and destroy it and take over the Assyrian Empire. And then Jeremiah will describe how the Babylonians then come in and destroy Jerusalem and conquer the people and take them into exile. And then Ezekiel will be one of those who is taken into exile back to Babylon. And then the last group of prophets are those of the Persian period. Now, I don't expect you to remember all of this list. There's not going to be a quiz at the end of the sermon uh, today. But this is just to show you that the order that the books appear in our Bible is not actually the chronological order. So every time you read one of these books, it's really helpful to read a short introduction first. If you have a study Bible or the Bible Project has a lot of great video introductions to all of these books, it's a good idea to just read a short introduction first, and the introduction will often tell you the time period that this prophet's messages are addressing and maybe some of the specific issues that they're trying to speak to. Now, as you read these books, uh, there's a few challenges that we're going to have. So here's four in particular. The first is that the content is often just a collection of messages. Now, there's a few exceptions, like Jonah, which is mostly a story, but most of these books are just message transcripts. And sometimes they're thrown together. And sometimes there is no context as to when this message was delivered, why it was delivered, who it was delivered to. We don't really know the background. Sometimes we have to piece those things together from the content itself, which can be difficult even for biblical scholars who focus on this kind of stuff. So that makes it hard to read these books. Here's the second challenge. Lots and lots and lots and lots of judgment and consequences. Because essentially what the prophets are saying during this time period is what Jimmy Carter was trying to say to the nation. The problem is not out there. It's not the Assyrians. It's not the Babylonians. It's not some problem out there. The problem is us. It is our own lives. It's our own actions. It's our own indulgences. And if we don't 
address those things. If we don't change them, there will be consequences. And sometimes uh, those consequences are described as self-destruction. And a lot of times those consequences are described as God's wrath and judgment. But for the prophets, they were one and the same. It was the same thing. And so you're going to hear a lot as you read these books about consequences and judgment. Uh, a third challenge. Lots of harsh language as well. All right? Because the more that the prophets give their messages and the more the people ignore their messages, the louder the prophets get, the more severe they get, the more harsh they get, sometimes the more punitive they get. In fact, they will begin to describe consequences of God's judgment that make all of us feel deeply uncomfortable. Now, part of that might just be hyperbole. It might be exaggeration. It might be the rhetorical effect they're going for. Part of it might be just their worldview and the way that they understand God is different than the way many modern people will think about God. But it's also likely that some of this just comes from their passion for how much they love God and how much they love the people. And it's like they see these people who are driving 100 miles an hour headed towards a cliff, and the prophet thinks, I am the only one standing between me and the cliff, and I have to do everything I can to get the people's attention before they drive off the cliff. And that leads to a fourth challenge when we read the prophets. Some strange stories. Sometimes they realize the only way to get the people's attention is not by simply speaking the message, but they actually have to live out or act out the message. And so we're told that Jeremiah one time destroys this piece of pottery to symbolize or illustrate how the city of Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. Ezekiel one time lays on the ground on one side for 390 days straight, almost as if there is a weight or a burden pressing down against him and he can't move in order to symbolize the weight and burden of Israel's sin and rebellion that has been on the people for the last 390 years. Or there's Hosea, who marries a prostitute to somehow capture this idea that even when Israel is faithless and immoral and turns their back on God, he will continue to be faithful to them. Now, all of these challenges are going to add up to one uh, simple reality. It is hard to hear and accept a prophet's message. So it's going to be hard for us as we read. It was hard for the people in the prophet's day. In fact, rarely did the people hear these messages and respond very well. Rarely did they actually change their ways. More often than not, the prophets were ridiculed and they were rejected. So fast forward again to 1979, um, when Jimmy Carter told Americans that the real problem was a moral and spiritual crisis, that they are the problem, that they're the ones that need to change. Nobody really wanted to hear that message. Just like the Old Testament prophets, it was too dark, too negative, too judgmental. What, what Americans want is a leader who will tell them everything's going to be okay. Somebody who will affirm them. 
Someone who's going to be way more positive, way more upbeat, way more optimistic. Someone who will applaud our spending, not criticize it. Someone who can identify the enemy is out there and we should go fight that enemy rather than suggest the enemy is inside of us. And so, sure enough, about a year later, Americans picked a new leader who fit that mold. Someone who would be way more optimistic and not so prophetic. See, uh, prophets are not usually good leaders of people or leaders of nations because it's just too hard to hear their message and accept their message. But we need prophets because they see the things that so many of us don't always see. In fact, that's why sometimes prophets are called seers, right? They see with different eyes. And then they speak the words that oftentimes no one else is willing to speak. They sometimes speak for God when we need to hear from him. And so as we enter this section of the Old Testament prophets, uh, for the next four weeks, we're actually going to dig a little deeper into some of the specific messages of the prophets. And we'll explain how we need to still hear some of their messages today and how they might connect with our lives today. But I want to close with two Practical questions for you and for me to ask. First, do you have a prophet in your life? Do you have somebody who can sometimes see what is true when you don't see it? Or someone who will speak what is true when maybe no one else is? As I mentioned, uh, David had that guy. His name was Nathan. And when uh, David went off the rails, when David made some really poor decisions, Nathan is the one who confronted him. Nobody else would. David's friends didn't confront him. David's family didn't confront him. The people working for David didn't confront him. Nobody else saw what Nathan saw and was willing to say what Nathan was willing to say. So the question is, do you have a prophet like that? In your life. And it doesn't have to be somebody who's angry all the time or anything like that, but somebody who is willing from time to time to see a little bit more clearly what maybe you don't see. Someone who is maybe willing to speak the words of God that you need to hear. Somebody who doesn't have anything to lose by speaking those words to you. It's probably not gonna be a close friend, it's probably not gonna be a family member. But you and I need that prophetic voice in our lives. Here's the second question. Uh, Do we have prophets in our community? Meaning in our church, in this community of faith, do we have individuals whose hearts are bent a certain way, who perhaps uh, can see issues like idolatry and injustice in ways that the rest of us just don't? If you happen to be here today and you're one of those people, we need you. We need your vision and we need your voice. And maybe your whole life you felt like there's something different about you. Maybe you've always felt like I don't really fit in. Maybe you've even felt like there's something wrong with me because you see things that other people don't see. You feel things that other people don't 
feel. And you can't understand why no one else is feeling this. You can't understand why no one else is seeing this, why this isn't making other people angry the way it's making you angry. And then when you tell other people how you feel, they say you're overreacting or that you're weird or you're making way big of a deal out of something that shouldn't be that big of a deal. And if that's your experience, then maybe you've got a little bit of profit in you. And the danger is that you will give up using your voice. And you'll especially give up on groups of people like churches or institutions because you just don't fit there or they never listen to you or because they're never willing to admit something inside of them actually needs to change. And so I would just encourage you today, if that's you, please don't give up on us. Don't give up on New Denver Church. Because we need you. Now, we don't need a lot of you, all right? (laughs) Because for every one prophet, uh, we need like 25 optimistic, encouraging, affirming, (laughs) uplifting people. So if you're one of those people, we need a lot of you too, all right? But we need the prophets as well. Because if we don't have prophets in our community of faith, we're in grave danger. Maybe not overnight, but over time in becoming a community of faith that doesn't really live or embody its faith. So, do you have a prophet in your life? Do we have prophetic voices in this community? I hope so. And if we don't, And it's something we need to start looking for. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you use so many different people in this world. And you give so many of us different gifts that contribute to your community of faith, to your kingdom, to your purposes. And so, God, we just thank you for those who are the prophets today, who see and feel the way that you see and feel. And I pray that you would affirm their role, even in our own midst, and that you would help all of us who are not to be more aware, to be more open, to be more listening to be willing to have our own eyes opened to the issues of idolatry or indulgence or injustice in our lives or in our world so that we can more closely trust in you, so that we can more closely follow you, and that so we can more closely be the community that you've called us to be. Give us that kind of vision. We pray this in your name. Amen.